I'll never forget when I first met Devin. Devin was a student in our student ministry, and Devin had zeal and passion, and he had the respect of his peers, he had the respect of his friends, he was a people type of person, people gravitated towards him. And on a Friday night after a football game, when we would do a fifth quarter, we would have two or three hundred students come to the church for their fifth quarter because there was nothing else to do in the county where we were. And Devin asked me at one point, is there any way that I could lead a session? Could I, could I do the talk on the, on the Friday night? And I said, sure. And I sat and I listened to someone who was wise beyond years, who had the ability to communicate at such a young age as a, as a junior senior in high school. I saw great potential and I told him, I said, you are going to be phenomenal. You're phenomenal already, but God is going to use you in amazing ways. Devin came from a broken home, a troubled home. And so when Devin uh, left and he went to college, he kind of pushed faith away. And so Devin today has nothing to do with the church. He has nothing to do with the Lord. He's grown cynical, almost agnostic, and he has nothing to do with the love that he first had. Devin is a person in need. Mark was also a, another young man who would give you the shirt off of his back. A great, great, great kid. Great, wonderful kid. But Mark also had a troubled home, troubled home life. And while neither of these two gentlemen can use their troubled home life as an excuse of their reality, Mark hit troubled times. And as a result, Mark went off the deep end. He got involved with the wrong crowd, as many of us do. And as a result of that, that took him on a journey that he never thought or imagined he would go down. So I get a phone call one day and Mark says, Todd, I need your help. And he began to explain his story. He was in trouble uh, with the law. And he asked me to do something with some evidence. Uh, and I said, Mark, I said, I, I don't have the power to do that. Like, I, I can't do that. It's not right for me to do that. And he said, but I figured that, you know, maybe you could, you could fix the problem. Mark, like a lot of other people, was looking to people to solve the problems. Mark was a person in need. Meredith was a great lady. Some called her Meredith, some called her Meredith. She smiled at either one. Meredith was the kind of woman, kind of person, kind of follower of Christ that you wanted to be praying for you. Because when Meredith prayed, things happened. When Meredith prayed, it's like the heavens moved. And so I was always, always, always keenly interested in the prayers that she offered. And I knew that when she said, Pastor, I'm praying for you, I kind of want to know what she was praying about. Because I knew whatever it was, it, it, she just had the gift of prayer. God would hear from heaven and God would move. I can't explain it. But when she spoke, when she prayed, whether it was privately in her countenance or whether it was publicly, you knew that she was in communion with the Father. Marita was a great leader, still is. Marita was also a person in need. She's a person in need because there are situations that she was facing even as a senior adult who had gone through life and had a great family and great children and and, and a wonderful opportunity, a great husband who had passed away some years before. But Marita still knew that she was in the need 
of Jesus. What about you? What kind of situation are you in? And are we this morning in the need of Jesus? Now we look back at Psalm 51 as the Psalm of David as he has slept with Bathsheba, as he has murdered Bathsheba's husband. Um, and there's this kind of this realization that David has been rebuked now by Nathan, the prophet, and as a result, he is dealing with a tumultuous thing called sin and the effects of sin on his life. David is a person in need. And the amazing thing is that there is no one that you and I are going to find in Scripture, whether they are a godly person or whether they're Jezebel, that's not in need of God. Every single person in the pages of the Bible... Every single fictional character that you read about in your best love series, whatever it might be, every single figure of the imagination, every potential person that might exist, every human being that has ever walked this planet, every human being that ever is going to walk on this planet, every animal, creature, and thing that was created by God is in drastic need of Him. He yearns and he longs for his people to be honest and transparent and authentic with who they are and who he is. All of us, all of us are in desperate need of God. What are we in need of from God though? Well, when I read Psalm 51 and when I look uh, out in, in the community and, um, you know, uh, when you see all the problems that our community faces, whether that's addiction or whether that's uh, uh, bad relationships or whether that's uh, gossip or slander or whether that's uh, whatever, whatever it is that plagues us, when you look out in our community, we see a lot of needs. Sometimes they're obvious. Sometimes those needs are people, if you go into Johnson City, sometimes on one of those exits, you'll see someone that says, help a veteran, I'm in need, I need food. Uh, and so some of you will drive by and you won't give him food and you won't think twice about it. Others of you in that moment have driven by him through two or three times and then there's that one day where you feel compelled that this is what you need to do. Pay attention to the small voice that's speaking to you on a moment-by-moment -moment basis and be willing to pursue what that voice tells you to do. Sometimes I will drive them by. Sometimes I will take a keen interest in what their circumstances are. But make no mistake, everyone, everyone, no matter how they look, how they present, they are in need, we are in need of God. What do we need from God? Well, if you look in verse 1, David writing, he says, Have mercy on me, O me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Now, quick rendering, we'd say, well, we need mercy. Well, that's one of those five-cent you know, five words that the church uses. Uh, more than mercy, and what's behind this mercy is God's unfailing love. Listen, where there is no unfailing love, there is no mercy. Mercy, the premise of mercy that God gives is built upon the foundation of what God is. God, as we find through the scripture, is love. It is impossible for God to deny what is innately his character and innately who he is. He is love. 
God's unfailing love is absolutely what you and I need. Everyone on this planet needs to be loved, and not only do they need to be loved, but they need to be able to feel as though they are loved. Because a person who never knows love will never know God. So to what extent are we loving people? And it's not about saying it, merely saying it. Because if you say, I love you, but then you're stabbing someone in the back, or if you're saying, I love you, but you're betraying that person's trust, then your actions nullify what your voice has proclaimed. Because God is not interested, listen, God is not interested in lip service. God is not interested in our voice. God is interested in our life. He is interested in the totality of who we are, understanding whose we are. We are in need of love, just like David. David was in need of mercy built upon God's unfailing love because David had sinned. Now, I used to read Psalm 51 and think to myself, well, I'm glad I'm not like David. Because David, he committed adultery. Woohoo! Hadn't done that one. Uh, David uh, murdered somebody, basically. Woohoo! Hadn't done that one. But then I began reading in the New Testament. You see, when you're stuck in the Old Testament and you want to be legalistic, you can really do it well and you, you're looking good. You know what I'm saying? But then when you get in the New Testament and you start to understand that Jesus is not interested necessarily in what you've done. He's interested in where are your thoughts? What are your motives? Where have you danced? Not literally, but where, where has your life gone? And so I began to examine that and I was like, well, let me think about that. Because uh, men, can we be frank in the room today? Now, I know there are wives in here and we have to be careful what we confess. But let me just say this. If you're a man and you've looked at another woman... Uh, let me, let me, men, how many of you looked at another woman? Okay, we have, mo uh, most people are honest in here. Some, oh, I see one upstairs. Uh, his wife's sitting right beside him. Uh, <laughs> you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we've looked at another woman. Now, when Tammy and I first got married, my favorite show on television was Law and Order SVU. And I don't know the woman's name, but she was hot. I'm just telling you right now. There's a lady on there. You know who I'm talking about. You know the lady I'm talking about. She's a beautiful, beautiful woman. We were sitting there one night watching TV, and I said, Tabby, I said, she is gorgeous. I didn't exactly get a reply <laughs> that was, was amicable. I didn't get a reply that was receptive. But the reality is this. I mean, it's one thing. Listen, you and I can notice. Listen, there are beautiful women in this room. You and I can notice the beauty of women. Ladies, you can notice the beauty or the handsomeness of men if you want to, and that's fine. And there's a certain level that that's appropriate. There's a certain level that that's okay. But David went a little bit further. David pushed the envelope. Most sinners do. As a teenager, I think I've shared with you early on here, as a teenager, I wanted to know what the limit was, where is the line, because I wanted to go right up to the line, right there. I don't want to go over the line, because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be a sinner, but heck, I'm going to go as far as I can before I become a sinner. You know, that threshold, uh, I was one of those dangerous kind of people. The problem is, I never approached the threshold without going over the boundary. You and I, when we have boundaries, we need to make sure what those boundaries are. They need to be clearly defined so that the boundaries right there, 
you know what? I probably don't even need to be on stage with it. Don't dance with the devil unless you're planning to get burnt. David, David allowed his eyes and his heart to venture to places that he didn't need to go. And as a result, he lusted after a woman. As a result, he ended up sleeping with that woman. As a result, he tried to cover up his sin because he didn't want his kingdom to know. He murdered her husband by sending him on the front lines. He ends up losing his own child because of the sin. Because there's no such thing as sin that doesn't wreak havoc on your life. Every time you and I sin, there are repercussions of that sin. You say, oh, well, wait a minute. I thought if I was God's child and I sin, he washes it away. Well, he does wash the sin away. But the results and the stain of sin and its implications on your life and my life and others around you don't necessarily go away when we repent and move on. There's always repercussions for the decisions that we make. We are in desperate need of God's love. David was in desperate need of God's love. Why? Because he had ventured outside of the parameters of what God's love is defined as. God's love is unconditional. It's not self-serving. It's not self-seeking. It looks at the other person and makes the other person their priority. That is what God's love is. Is about you and I are in need of love why because we find out by reading the New Testament in 1st Peter chapter 4 verse 8 that love covers a multitude of sins the only way that we get out of our sin problem the only way that we get in our problem of our character being affected by the evil that uh, that affects it is is God's love God's love covers a multitude of sins Compassion and love blot out sin. If you look in, in verse 1 of the passage, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. If you want to have freedom from sin, you purge yourself of the sin and you latch on to God's love and compassion. But you don't latch on to God's love and compassion overwhelmed by His love and compassion without this idea of repentance. There is no forgiveness of sin without repentance. That means, repentance means, not only that you recognize something is wrong, but you are determined that because you understand something is wrong, you're not going to dabble with it. You're going to turn away from that and go in a different direction. One of the reasons that many people in the church struggle with ongoing sin is because we want Jesus, we love Jesus, we want His mercy, we want His love, we want His compassion, but we, want, we don't want the requirement to turn away from that which we enjoy. And let's just be frankly honest in this room today, sin is fun. Look to the person on your left and tell them sin is fun. Oh, that sounds wimpy. You need to be emphatic about it. Sin is fun. Right, now turn to the verse on the right. Sin is fun. And proclaim to the rooftops, I am a sinner. It's fun. But I'm not proud of it. Sin is fun. I mean, I grew up in a church where it was like, sin is bad. Sin is not good. Sin is not fun. We are pious and we are righteous and we need to focus on the Lord. The reality is sin is fun. Uh, and I'm saying that because 
when I look around, if sin wasn't fun, we wouldn't have so much of a problem with it. No one says, listen, no one says it's fun living a holy life. Listen, I mean, and, and, and I know some of you who are more spiritual than I am will say, well, wait a minute, I have the joy of the Lord. I understand that. That's wonderful. I'm not, I'm not being condescending of the joy of the Lord. But the reality is to a world that doesn't know Christ, I mean, I have to admit, when someone flips me the bird on Interstate 26, I want to flip the bird back. Okay? I want to have fun in that moment. I want to hunt them down. I want to pulverize them into the road. But no, I'm the pastor of First Baptist Church and I'm a follower of Jesus first and foremost and so that requires me not to be animal on other people. But I could have fun. You see the difference? It's hard to be a follower of Christ. And listen, there's great joy in it, but listen, somebody hits me upside the head, I want to hit them back. You know? I want to cheat on my taxes. I really do. Some of you do it already. <laughs> I want to. Uh, you know, there was a, listen, there was, a, there was a question on the radio the other day, and I, you know, it's whatever, my, I don't listen to the radio, but my wife will have NPR or something on, and there was this crazy thing that somebody did out west and a, a kind of a call in and a question, and they said, the question was this, if you could rob a bank and it wasn't wrong, would you do it? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> well, where do I go? I mean, if, let me listen. If I could rob a bank and it wasn't wrong, it's not a sin, okay? Who would not rob a bank? I'd rob it. Heck yeah. Go to Best Buy and everywhere else and buy anything I want. But it's a crazy question because no matter what we want to think about it, no matter how we want to justify it, it is wrong. Morality does not change just because our culture and watch what we watch on primetime television endorses something. Morality is constant. Listen, the Bible doesn't change. How we understand the Bible might change. How we implore the Bible might change. But His truth does not change. Stealing is wrong. There doesn't need to be a conjunction after that. Stealing is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Thinking evil thoughts is wrong. I don't, I don't care if you have a bad marriage. I don't care if your wife berates you. I don't care if your husband berates you. Sin is sin. Now, I know we, you know, well, we live in a culture where, you know, the people, people have their feelings hurt. And we have to be sensitive to that. And, you know, I am so beyond the feeling thing. This self-esteem junk. Um, and, and, you know, I'm married to a therapist, and she's probably all about self-esteem, but, you know, she's not preaching the sermon. Uh, the, the issue for me, the, the issue is this. We focus more on how people feel than what their reality is. What do you think about that? We focus on feeling more than truth. Where has that gotten us? It's gotten us into a miry mess. David sin. Now, he was, a, he was a guy after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. He sinned. And yet God in His mercy and His steadfast, unfailing love restored him, forgave him, but there were consequences. He lost a child. He lost a child as a result of his sin. You think, well, that's not fair. Listen, sin's never fair. 
The consequences of sin are never fair, but that doesn't mean they're not real. We're in need of love. But more, just as important as the need for love, if you look in verse 14 of the passage, the Bible says, Deliver me from blood guilt, O God, you who are God, my Savior. We are in need of deliverance. We need someone to deliver us from our problems. We have done wrong in the sight of God. If you look in verse 11, we need His presence. If you look in verse 8, we need joy and gladness. We need to experience something. It's not just about feeling, it's about being. We need to be caught up in the life that He embodied that was His way. His way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. Being caught up in the life that He embodied rather than merely the words that He spoke. Listen, we can have all the right beliefs about Christ. We can have all the right doctrine in the world. You can memorize and recite the Baptist faith and message backwards, forwards. You can do it in Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Ugaritic, anything else? You can Aramaic. You can do it all. And you and I can still burn in hell. Because, listen, it's not about knowing things about God. It's about knowing Him. It's not only about knowing Him, it's about accepting His plan for our lives as we are in need of His love and as we are in need of His deliverance. Without God, you and I will never be delivered from anything. And we will always be confounded and addicted to those very things that are keeping us from experiencing what our desire is. That is to have the joy and gladness of God that verse 8 speaks about. We're in need of deliverance. But as you read the Bible, all the way through the Old Testament, even in the New, you see action after action, you see event after event, you see time after time how people are followers of God, how they are doing the good thing, and then suddenly they get trumped up, they get off kilter, they go on their own journey, they make mistakes. And there's always this need to return to God. There's always this need to get back to Him. Whether it's the Israelites that uh, basically take up foreign gods and start worshiping them and worshiping idols. And you say, well, I'm glad we don't have that problem. Think about that before you quickly dismiss idolatry in this age and time. You may not have a Buddha in your den. You may not have a statue or a graven image in your den. But make no mistake, idolatry is just as real today as it was then. What are your idols? And they're even more scary because sometimes our idols are not even confessed or professed. But they lie dormant in our lives. And they occupy our time more than He does. Think about what occupies your time. Who do you spend the most time with? What do you spend the most time for? What idols do you and I have? We are in need of deliverance. Just like the Israelites. Then there's a story in Jonah in the Old Testament... He was in need of a deliverance. Why did he need to be delivered? Because he did not want to do what God told him to do. And if we look at that, a lot of people look at that and say, well, David's much worse because he committed adultery. Really? Is one act of adultery worse than thousands of people not being able to accept the Lord because a prophet of God refuses to go to the place of Nineveh? 
And if you look at the story in Jonah, I, 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 I need to preach on it one Sunday, but it's an amazing story because, listen, Jonah has this, this ultimate sadness that overcomes him. And you're thinking, as you're reading, you're thinking, oh, he has seen the light, he has seen the light, he understands, he has transgressed against God, he's gone his own way. And he cries out, and he's so upset because a worm goes into the tree that's providing him shade, and he mourns and prays and focuses on that tree. And God's judgment comes to Jonah and says, Listen, you care more for that tree than you do for the thousands that don't know me. See, sin is sin. Whether it's adultery or whether you're giving up on thousands that people called you, called you to, to, to witness to. We have a habit in our culture of rating it. You know, and I'm not going to go through the list, but there's, there's about three things today. Three sins. Woo. You can do anything you want to do. You can murder. But there's these three things. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I'm not going into it because I don't want to give. Listen, I don't want to give word to it. I don't want to support it because sin is sin. Whether you are holy and you sin, whether you're depraved and you sin, you're still a sinner. We're all sinners. Doesn't matter whether you're the pastor of First Baptist Church, whether you're a youth guy, whether you're a music guy, whether you're the children's director. Doesn't matter whether you're a deacon, Sunday school teacher, whether you're put together pretty, got on the makeup right, got on the right earring, whether you lost the earring, found the earring, or anything else. We are in need of love, we are in need of deliverance, but ultimately we are in the need of Jesus. You look in verse 10 of the passage, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We need a pure heart. We need a steadfast spirit. We need restoration. If you look in verse 12 of the passage, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I love that because I like to think, I'm thinking of when I've always read that, I've read into it, and what I've read into it all my life was, Restore me to the day of my salvation. Like when I accepted Christ back in 1986 at Vacation Bible School. But notice what the Bible says is, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Salvation. Guess what? It's not about us. It's not about the fact that you walked down an aisle. It's not about the fact that you crossed your T's and dotted your I's or you believed the right things or said the right things or prayed the right prayer that the preacher told you to repeat. It's about His salvation. Restore to us the joy of His salvation. Because His salvation is a lot better than anything that you and I could come up with. Because His salvation works. Our plan doesn't restore us to the joy of his salvation and then he goes on to write we must offer a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart I love the word contrite because what it means is it expresses the depths of what our heart should be when we are really focused on our sin let's see you know I can uh, I can I can acknowledge my sin and not repent of it you know, and many of us have done that. I've done that myself in my own life. I, you know, I know it's a sin. And a lot of us, listen, if we're honest, we're really honest, we'll say, there's a lot of times that I choose to sin and I know it's a sin and I just plan to ask for forgiveness later. How many of us have done that? We've all done that. 
But when you do that, your heart and your motives are not centered in his unfailing love, are not centered in something that's going to bring you deliverance, are not centered in something that's going to bring restoration. A contrite heart is a heart that is deeply remorseful. And I, you know, I, don't, I don't know another phrase to say. Deeply uh, repentant of what you and I have done. It's not merely sorry. You know, for instance, uh, sometimes at my house, um, you know, when, uh, because at my house, you know, I'm right and they're wrong. Uh, but at my house, when, uh, uh, that was meant to be funny, but some of you didn't laugh. But at any rate, um, sometimes my kids uh, will say, you know, when, you know, for instance, when Anderson gets mad or something, he'll storm off, okay? He storms off. Now, he storms off because that's what his mother did. You know, I always contain my emotions. I never had a temper. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and so uh, he storms off, and so I'll call him back in the room, son, uh, I don't like that response. Like, I'm not convinced that you're, you know, you understand? I told you to do I'm sorry. Man, that makes me feel better, you know? Let's go get an ice cream at tw uh, tr uh, Tweetsie Treats, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, are you really sorry? Are you and I really sorry when we flippantly say that? I'm sorry. Gosh, Matt, your words say it, but gosh, your demeanor, your countenance does not convey it. It's sort of like this. If you see someone standing somewhere like this, does that look like somebody you want to walk up to? I mean, I mean, really. Uh, let's say you're going, uh, I'm getting ready to go to get a loan at a bank for a house. Woohoo! And um, let's say I go to the bank, and let's say the loan officer looks like this. I want another loan officer. You know what I'm saying? I, I want somebody whose countenance is welcoming, not somebody's countenance that is attempting to push me off or avoid me. What does your countenance say? What does your countenance speak? When we're focused and when we look at our sin and the decisions that we make, are we truly repentant of the things that we say, of the things that we do? We're in need of love. We are in need of deliverance. You and I are in the need of Jesus. And as a result of coming to Him, and as a result of being honest and authentic and transparent with Him, as a result of having a one-on-one -on -one with God and just a, a confession time and a time of repentance where we, you know, we, we, have a, we present a contrite heart, a real and authentic contrite heart that's seeking to repent and it is so so greatly remorseful of the things that we've said or the things that we've done or the actions that we've taken. He, in return, lifts us to new heights. He, in return, enables us to not only envision but for it to be realized in our lives. Isaiah 40, 31, we will soar on wings like eagles. We will run and not grow weary. We will walk and not become faint. This God who has unfailing love and compassion for us, even as sinners, doesn't want us to be defined in that moment, nor does He want us to be stuck in that moment, nor does He want us to continue to go through our everyday life the way we always have. Now, some of you have signed up for this Daniel plan thing on Wednesday night. Let me, let me see how many of you are doing that. Wow, I'm telling you what. Mm, brave soul. You have to say goodbye to sugar, okay? Wow, 
I mean, like, that's like saying, you know, goodbye to the devil for a sea. I mean, it, it's, it's so difficult to do. But here's the thing. <clears throat> do you have to be disciplined to do that plan? I mean, is it easy to eat sweets? I mean, hello, somebody holds up asparagus raw or somebody holds up a Reese's peanut butter cup. <laughs> what, are, what are most people going to choose? A Reese's peanut butter cup. <laughs> it's better. It tastes better. Not everything that tastes good is good for you. Some things that taste good will actually kill you. But when it comes to sin, we're so accustomed of feeling like we're good, doing what we think is good, that we take, listen, when you and I take a steady diet of what we want, of what we think makes us happy, when we take a steady diet of pleasure or whatever it is that you want to call it, Study a diet of that will kill you. That's why sin is fun, because sin is easy. But God calls us to a higher standard. And that standard is not to pretend like we're not sinners. It's not to be pious. It's not to pretend like uh, we're holier than thou. God desires us to be authentic, but he wants a contrite heart that desperately is seeking his love who is desperately seeking his deliverance and who is desperately seeking the one thing that he's offered that will transform every single human being's life that will come to him and that is Jesus Jesus can fix your problem Jesus can fix your problem do you trust him are you pursuing him or do you want to continue the same way that you've been? I tell people all the time, if they've not followed Christ, if they're not a follower of Christ, just listen, give it 30 days. Try Him for 30 days. Be serious about Christ for 30 days. Be honest to God, even though you may not believe in Him, for 30 days. And when I've challenged people that, I've never had somebody come to me after 30 days and say that they were worse off than when they began. They're usually better. Sometimes they've accepted Christ. Sometimes they've had a great spiritual breakthrough. Are you leaning on Christ? Are you leaning on the sufficiency of his love, the power of his deliverance, and the provision that he's offered through Christ? If you're trying anything else, you and I will always be disillusioned. We will always go home hungry. We will always go home without our needs met. We will always go home with hunger pains, yearning and longing for more. Today, we invite you to leave with Jesus. We invite you not only, and for many of you, you know, you know how to spell his name, you know about him, you've, you've been raised in a church, but for many of us, you've never quite plugged in to understand that it's more about knowing about him it's about living and being caught up in the life that he embodied. It's more than just simply being sorry for your sin. It's more than simply uh, speaking it out in the air of, you know, I did this or I did that. It's about understanding that when you and I sin, it is against, listen, it's against God. So therefore, when you're going down I-26, and this really is what compels me not to flip my finger up. Uh, when you're going down I-26... Somebody flips you off, I want to flip them off too. But when I flip them off, 
I'm not merely sinning against that individual. When I tell somebody, when I give somebody a four-letter word or whatever else that you might choose to say, when I choose to do that, I'm not just sinning against them. The Bible says, what? In verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. It's very interesting because, listen, he slept with Bathsheba. He sinned against her. He sent Uriah the Hittite out on the front lines to be killed. He sinned against him. No, 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 no. He sinned against God. When you and I recognize that even our private sins that we think that are private that no one knows about, maybe your wife doesn't know about, your husband doesn't know about, your children know about, listen, Every sin is a sin against God. How do I know that? Because what God did on the cross through His Son Jesus Christ is took all the sin personally on Himself. Why? Because He loves us. Why? Because He wants to deliver us. Why? Because Jesus was the way, period. So think about that when the speed limit's 35 here in Elizabethan and you're going 40. <laughs> think about that when you cheat on your taxes. Think about that when someone flips you off and you turn and flip them off. Think about it when you, uh, you want to demonize somebody else that doesn't agree with you on Facebook, which happens quite a lot around these parts. Think about what you're doing. You're not, listen, your anger's not burning against them. Your sin is not burning against them. Your sin is against God. When I began realizing that, I began thinking really seriously about what I'm doing. Because it's one thing to tick off somebody I don't know. It's another thing to tick off the Almighty One who not only do I know, who knows me who has saved me and who has called me and who says to me every day, you can do so much better than that. We can do a lot better. Alone, we can do nothing. With Him, we can do all things. We are in the need of His love. We are in the need of His deliverance. We are in the need of Jesus. We pray with Him. Fathers, we come today in this invitation. And Lord, as we deal with the circumstances of our lives, the, the fruit that we have, whether that's good fruit or bad fruit or no fruit, Lord, the decisions that we make, the motives that we have, may we understand the sins that are often captivating our attention and consuming our lives. May we understand that those sins are directly against you. And Lord, as we sing Amazing Grace today, Amazing Grace is not nearly as amazing until we come to the realization that that grace was and is for us. Amazing grace is not nearly as amazing when we are detached from the one who gave his all. And so today in this invitation, we invite people to come to know him maybe for the first time, perhaps to have a rekindled spirit, a renewed spirit, a steadfast love towards God. Maybe there's some that need to confess today. As Peggy Wiggins talked today, that there was power in prayer. And so many of us have people that are on our mind constantly, and we are consumed. Listen, our prayer requests sometimes have become the very idols of our lives. May we not be defined by our own prayer requests or the needs of others. May we be defined by the living 
Christ because He is the one that provides love. He is the one who gives us deliverance. We desperately need Jesus. So Father, in this invitation, as we respond, as people come to leave their prayer requests, as people come to surrender names that need to be prayed for, needs that need to be prayed for, as people surrender their lives and their calling and their livelihood, as people confess their sins, Father, you are faithful and just to, to forgive them their sins and cleanse us from all the unrighteousness that often defines us. So Lord, in this invitation as we sing, may our voices sing, may our hearts respond, and may we be honest and transparent and authentic because you authentically went to the cross for us. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Will you stand? As you need to come this morning and respond, won't you come? This altar's open. This table's open for you to leave your request. If you need to speak to me, that's great. You don't need to speak to me. Listen, you don't need me to go to God. God can deal with you where you are in this place and this time. This altar's open as we come and as we respond to him.